0: Watch the log files very closely. It actually was a beautiful thing in my mind because we're taking customer input and using it to make customer experience better every single day. You don't get much better than (laughs) that.
1: This episode is sponsored by myperfectcolor.com, founded by ex-Amazonian Jason Shaw. My Perfect Color is a paint manufacturer specializing in exact match paint color solutions for touch up paint and marketing applications for businesses. Color obsessed companies such as Yeti Coolers, Trek Bicycles, IDEO, Tiffany Jewelers and more rely on My Perfect Color to match their colors perfectly every time whether you need paint to develop prototypes, displays, signs, exhibits or to touch up product that has been scratched during fabrication, transit or installation, my perfect color can help. To learn more, visit myperfectcolor.com. Hello, I'm Dave Chappelle and I'd like to welcome you to the Invent Like an Owner podcast, where I've talked with the Amazonians who helped build amazon.com into one of the world's most valuable companies. This weekly podcast is for entrepreneurs, future business leaders and students of history and not to mention people who want to get a job at Amazon still. The goal of the podcast is to capture the Amazon creation stories and create a historical archive. On that note, my guests are recalling history as best they can. It's possible some of the details are fuzzy or wrong. <laughs> if that's the case, uh, let us know. Uh, you can you know do it in the comments. You can email me, and I invite future guests or commenters to help us get the facts as straight as they can be. Uh, now, on with the show. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Dwayne Bowman and Ruben Ortega who hold a special place in Amazon lore as the creators of Bottega Box, or Bottega, I call it Bottega Box, which you'll learn more about during today's episode. They were both quite early Amazon software engineers, starting in 97, Dwayne, and 98, Ruben. So I'm sure they'll both have a lot of interesting stories to share about early website innovations, especially around search, algorithm development, and more. Welcome, Dwayne and Ruben. Thank you. Sure. So let's jump right in. Can one of you... Tell the story of Bottega or Bottega Box, and you know maybe put it in perspective as what the experience was like at the time where it was created.
2: Sounds good. So I joined Amazon in January of 1998, and we launched the Bottega Box in March of 1988. So it was three months to ideate, implement, and launch, patent, and launch. So what was happening on the site at the time is we had one sort order on Amazon.com. It was alphabetical. And so if somebody came to Amazon.com and searched for the partner, the results you would get back, the top result would be... uh,
1: The partner being a John Grisham book or or something like that?
2: The partner being the book by John Grisham. The top result would be 101 date ideas for you and your partner. The 40th result would be how to make partner in your organization. And you had to click two more pages before you got to the partner by John Grisham. And we knew we were going to change the search engine. We had plans to change the search engine, but it was going to take four or five months to reimplement what we needed to do. And this was a horrible experience on the site. And we officially had no time to work on this. We had to fix the bugs. We had to scale the site. We had this new search engine that was coming. There was no time to work on it. So, over a weekend, what we did was I was looking at the problem and I was looking at the log files, and the Eureka moment happened. The Eureka moment was what if we could take all that energy our customers were doing to find the thing they were looking for? And what we ended up doing is we ended up mapping the words people used to the things they clicked on and weighting it by the items they bought. We built a small index, put it, did a quick little lookup algorithm on it using some code that Greg Linden implemented. And we had had a stunning result that happened. Basically, we had inadvertently discovered the vocabulary of purchase. So... Customers were telling us and doing putting all this effort finding things such that we could build a small sub-index and return results that led immediately to purchase. Not only was this monetarily good for Amazon, it made the customer experience beautiful. You could come into the search, you know, after a couple of customers typed in the partner. One day, the very next day, if you typed in the same phrase, rather than page down through pages of results, it appeared right at the top of the page. It was kind of amazing. And the, the thing that I really loved about it was that even the data bugs were powerful. Because if enough customers typoed the same name, like Limbiscuit, they would suddenly start getting that result at the top of the page. Because the, eventually, if they typed Limbiscuit and got and bought this item, they would get they, they would get that result. Another example Sorry. was uh, searching. for Yes.
1: So it's sort of like early spell check, or basically, there's no human needed. It's learning that, hey, people are typing variations of the term, and they're still ending up clicking and buying the resultant product.
2: Exactly, or even words that had nothing to do with the item itself. For example, people would type in Oprah, Empire Falls. The word Oprah has nothing to do with the book of Empire Falls, except it happened to be Book of the Month Club. What that meant was later on that month or later on the next day, somebody could just come into the website and type in Oprah, and they would start getting a relevant set, set of results for what was going on. And so it was really one of those moments where you where you build something and look at it and just go, wow, the, the results were so much better. Everything just was was so much better after with search results
0: with respect to the relevancy to the customer and the quality of the product. I was just going to say, Ruben, that key phrase you mentioned there when you're talking about it is, I was looking through the log files one weekend. This is something that log files are something that you don't, Typically, read on at your leisure time, right? It, it's, it's sort of just, like uh, I mean, you know, this is basically a record of every click on the site is what the in the log files. And so, the thing about Ruben and and I, both of us, is we spent tons of time sort of grepping through the log files and seeing what the problems were, what the issues were. How can we make the site better? And this is one instance where it was, it was an amazing sort of leap. And like, this was '98, so this is actually pre Google. This, is, you know, this is a long time ago, but yeah, it's even better than actually trying to use spell check with a dictionary because many of the words you're typing in are not in the dictionary. They're proper names, et cetera. So we can actually handle all these misspellings just from looking at data in the log files and building these indexes.
1: It is ironic you use the example, the partner, and probably you guys were both looking through log files because you should have been finding a partner at the time. So. Oh. <laughs> So I, again, I remember it distinctly, but you mentioned that you leveraged some work that Greg Linden had been doing. Is basically when people would see is instead of having to go to page five or whatever, they would see the top three results. And you shared that um, screen grab with me that we'll put in the post. Was that used in other places on the website or detail pages, for instance, did they use different things for, you know, people who bought this also bought these other types of things? Or was it all working on the same, you know, core set of solutions?
2: It was the start of a set of solutions because when we discovered that if you could use words to map to behaviors and weight it by the purchase, it really began a whole Fan out of innovation that came out, that came out of that, and so we could certainly start, you know, doing things like words people use to buy products, other words people use to buy products, reorganize browse trees so that if customers would frequently go to the book site and navigate the browse tree to bestseller, science fiction, hardcore science fiction, and then click on Game of Thrones, we could reorganize the browse tree such that it would lift those relevant categories up, reducing the amount of energy it would take to take another customer to find things. I know eventually personalization ended up using words as weightings as part of their detail page results, but it, it took a while to get there because it was, there was a lot of work to do in 1998.
1: Right. This is a non-technical person asking the question, but why was it that alphabetical was the only option at the time. Like Every engineer who ever built the first search engine would say, we've got to be able to bring <coughs> back results in a different way. So were there other simple algorithms to display search results and they just didn't work very well? Or had someone never really thought about a purchase experience or a, even a search experience, right, about how to get the best result, not the one that starts with the letter A?
0: This is where we go to Dwayne. Yeah, I don't think that a lot of thought was given to it back in you know, 96, 97 when the... When the site was just spinning up, I mean, Shell you know, it was doing everything on the site, and he sort of thought about it as a database problem. So when, and the way people searched back then pre-Google for this kind of application would, was you had fields of data, you had author fields, you have title fields, you have date fields, and you want to put terms into those fields and see if you can get the right term set to get, get you the result you want, right? That's what the interface looked like, actually, when I got there in 97, there wasn't a single box. Yeah. You could just type a word in like like a Google box, right? That wasn't existing back then. It was, it was an author, title, a date search, basically. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's clear now that you don't want that kind of thing on an Amazon.com site. And relevance wasn't something that was easily gotten you know, sort of arrived right. at in that kind of situation, right? So, we did look at you know changing the search engine pretty quickly. And you know, we got there in, I guess, later 98 or 99, got to change the search engine, but we had to live with what we had. At that point, and this was the best way we could go. Yeah,
1: Are you saying that reminds me, my local library, I still get books at the library because I'm frugal, eternally frugal, <laughs> and their search interface still looks like, you know, the, actually Google still has one too where you can expand to search on multiple sure. variable fields. So so I read something that Ruben had written that it was a big jump, like what was the sales jump from Bottega when it launched? And the secondary question on that is, did we even have AB labs, you know, web labs or AB tests at the time? or did you literally just say, "This is better. We're going to slap it up, and we'll look at the change in sales volume?
2: Well, it was double digit percentages attributable sales. You can always argue those customers would have you know rewritten their query eventually. Somebody would have gotten the partner, not seen the result and typed in the partner, John Grisham. And eventually they could have worked their way to it, but it was really more of just making it easier for customers to buy things. So there was no extra extra revenue. Other than the assumption was it made it easy to buy once, they would look for more
0: products and it would make it easier to buy more products. There was no A-B testing set up at that point. Basically, we just tried it. Uh, It was clear the experience was much better. So we put it in production and watched the log files very carefully for 24 hours and made sure everything was fine. But the experience was just so much better. Even the sales numbers trade will didn't really matter that much. It was just a clear experience leap.
1: It is funny. It's a way of thinking about measuring the right thing too. So for instance, you probably really negatively impacted page views on the site, <laughs> you know, and, and time on site, you know, because I remember right. getting there and people talking about that as an example, eBay, people spend tons of time there. Whereas Amazon's heavy customers did not spend a lot of time because you and people like you and teams got really good at helping them quickly find what they were looking for. So they, you know, get in, get out, and hopefully have a good experience. So, longer term, a change like this, how did it ripple through? I mean, you mentioned spell correct or, you know, an early version of it. How do things like this ripple through? A little bouncing around a little bit, because when you were first hired, Ruben, you weren't hired to solve this problem, right? You were hired to improve search. So let's go back to that. Like, was that your first task or Dwayne, you hired Ruben, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So like, was that his first task is like, hey, Ruben, uh, your job is to fix search or you and this team is going to fix search. And how was that prioritized? You know, because this is obviously made sense to do before fixing search because it was sort of a smart hack to fix search until, you know.
0: Right, Right. Yeah. I don't remember exactly the priority list. The exact time we hired Ruben. You know, I had been hired spring of 97. So I'd just been there a year, basically, when Ruben came along. And the search team was basically just me, I think. <laughs> I think Ruben was the next guy, I think. And eventually we hired several more people and we had, had the catalog group as well uh, working with them. But yeah, I think the Bottega thing was not on anybody's priority list. It was a weekend hack project that turned into something much bigger. And uh, Ruben's right, it spawned all kinds of related, you know, sort of technologies down the line that became the experience became quite a bit better. Related searches, I just was reminded of that when I saw the screenshot there, uh, the spell checking thing. So yeah, I don't remember the priority list, but I think the big priority was migrating to the new search engine, which actually was just another stopgap because a couple of years later, we actually wrote a whole nother search engine in-house and migrated to that as well.
2: The, 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 we replaced our internal search engine with Alta Vista, and we had learned so much from the Botella Box experience and from the data experience. The day we launched it, it was irrelevant because we, we got better at return, returning relevant results than an off-the-shelf search engine. The technology of the day was very much focused on, and, and relevancy of the day was very much focused on: can I analyze this document better and get? the right result for a customer and for a person right and what we discovered was that we needed an index that was capable of being updated hourly daily and being able to weigh off metrics that were outside of the context of a, a simple document we originally were swapping the virtue of that stopgap engine was that it was capable of handling international languages uh, we knew that we were heading into germany and france soon and we needed a search engine that was capable of handling multiple languages. Uh, but we didn't have the team capable of building that yet.
1: And the yeah. UK with all yeah. those extra U's, you know, and, and, and everything. <laughs> yeah. And so were search results at that point person-specific? And what I mean is, did they factor in the things that Dwayne had searched for over the past year? Or was it still just no. looking at the word that was typed
0: in to the box and... It was just a word against the the index. That's that's all we had at that point.
1: Yeah, because if somebody searches for partner, you actually don't have any idea if they're looking for John Grisham becoming a partner or finding a partner. Right. And so that's right. And so that was just still a limitation of this, basically. Like how would you wait in that example, if you can remember, if someone just searched partner, how would you or how would the team, the search team, think about prioritizing each of those results? Would you say, look, John, somebody searches for the word partner, John Grisham's in that in top three, or did it change based on you know slight variations like with and without the et cetera?
2: One of the innovations that came in with that was uh, that we decayed the data over windows of time. And so this was actually the failure case of Barnes & Noble at the time. I was comparing our results to Barnes & Noble because they actually had more than one sort order. And even they were failing on capturing relevant results in a timely fashion. Uh, You could do a search for uh, the word cat and their top result was catcher in the rye. One has nothing to do with the other, and I'm sure Catcher in the Rye is the best-selling book of all time, but somebody using the word cat is not looking for Catcher in the Rye. Didn't want it, Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: When you look at the site now, assuming it's massively better. In your time there, were there big strides made in things like that even? Or was it still so early that there was low-hanging fruit for things like improving personalized search and that sort of thing?
2: Did I mention there was no time?
1: <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. That's That's been a constant theme.
0: Yeah, yeah there, was, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit back in 97 for sure. And uh, we were just, you know, the big thing in 97 was even with just books alone, in-print, out-of-print books, it's all we had to worry about but we had to worry about getting a catalog up every day, pretty much. If a new book comes out, you want the book to be in the catalog and to be on sale that day it comes out, right? You don't want people waiting. So just the, and I don't even remember all the details of this, but just the onerous process of taking in input feeds from Baker and Taylor and these publishers and building a catalog that was accurate and had the right information in it and putting it on the site. Just that was Herculean at that time, trying to get it done. Right. And so that was a lot of our time, just figuring that part out. And then the search thing was tunnel low hanging fruit because we hadn't been thought about really uh, before 97.
1: One thing that, Ruben, you mentioned, and maybe I didn't understand it, so I'll go back to it. You mentioned swapping out from the original Amazon search engine that I'm assuming Shell and team built to Alta Vista, And did you say that that didn't really work or it was only good for a short period of time before it had to be improved again? Like, was that considered off the shelf at that time? Was that the best that existed? Or, you know, how was that decision made?
2: Basically, it was a piece of off the shelf software that supported multiple languages. And that was the key constraint and multiple sort orders. So that is, it was a key bit of infrastructure that did it. And it was not a skill that we had in-house. When Duane hired me, I had zero search engine experience. I looked at the code as written and was able to tweak it to make it go better and faster and stronger. But it wasn't until we hired more people on the team that actually had search engine experience that made the product the thing that it is today. And Bottega no longer exists on the site. I, I don't know the date it was removed, but I know it was past 2002 at least. But right. I know that what is there now is, you know, science fiction compared to what we started with.
1: Yeah, when you think back to somewhere again it was probably in your article you talked about the scaling of search both probably in terms of just sheer volume of searches happening every minute, right? To probably how complicated they were in terms of what data they're going to look at. Maybe this fell more on Dwayne like how did you balance again new features versus scaling and supporting and making sure it was fast and, you know, stable if that's the right word.
0: Yeah, I don't Remember the numbers. And maybe Ruben remembers the numbers better than I do in terms of how many searches per per minute. There was a ton of searching going on on the site, and it, and the scaling. Just keeping up with the scaling was an issue for sure. And uh, you know, Kim talked about in your, your podcast with her the migration from a single server to multiple servers, all all that, and putting the indexes on each server, putting the catalog on each server. That was a big piece of scaling. But just to get just to keep up with volume uh, was a big deal. Yeah, the AltaVista solution was a good off-the-shelf. It was probably state-of-the-art in 97, 98. We pretty much wrote something a year after that or two years after that that was better in-house, basically, for our needs. But yeah, it seemed like every day was mostly consumed with just not breaking the site and keeping the scaling going.
1: In the early days, was it more just throwing hardware at it, or was it a a mix of both? It was a mix. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was definitely a mix. When you write something as complicated as, as the Amazon backend, with basically one person writing it you know, for the first year or so, there's tons of low hanging fruit you can do to optimize. And so we spent a lot of time doing that.
2: Yeah. The big win in migration was going to multiple servers. Uh, success has many parents. And everybody claims to have you know you know started web services at Amazon, but I know that I started web services <laughs> at Amazon because the very first web service at Amazon was when we decided to take the search off the same box as the website, put it on its own fleet of servers. And it was using XML over HTTP to talk. And our, the name of our first search server was Obidos. We had no experience in-house in house on how to deploy multiple binaries, so we would just take that same front end server, send it to the back end, and we added a little tag that says ampersand XML equals true. And if that came back, then we needed to send back send back a net set of XML results.
1: And what if it didn't come back? What are some examples that would make it break, or would you have to re-request, or how would that work?
2: Failure wasn't an option. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was not
1: an option.
2: <laughs> so it always, re- so yeah. it always
1: returned true.
2: <laughs> well, and actually, the, that was one of the, so to call to a, another friend and colleague there, the day we did that deployment, every the, all the front-end servers at the time immediately went from a load of, 60% utilization down to 30% utilization. And I got a phone call from Jesse Robbins saying, you broke the site. And I said, what do you mean I broke the site? He said, we've just lost half the compute to compute on the site. And we looked at it and everything was working. In fact, the site was working better. And what had happened was what we didn't know until we had done this change was that There was so much memory competition on the servers from the search engine operating at the same time as the website software that just by removing both, both started running more efficiently because you had a machine that was dedicated to running just the search service and you had a machine that dedicated to running just the website and they weren't competing for the same resources and the same memory.
1: You mentioned Jesse, can you give a quick explanation of what his role was and then also was his conclusion, you know, based on measuring the wrong thing? Or because you could also could have just said, hey, Jesse, are sales off? You know, our shopping carts off, mm-hmm. or uh, you, you know, so what was Jesse's role at the company at the time?
2: Jesse Robbins is the master of disaster. He was the one who was owned the infrastructure for Amazon at the time. And he was the one who was dealing with a lot of the operational goo. And so similar to us looking at log files the only tools he had were looking at load and capacity on a fleet of servers and then trying to figure out what happened. I'm positive that the instrumentation we have on the site will better correlate you know, revenue to activity. But again, back at that time, all we could do was call each other up and say, what did you just change? And try to figure it out.
1: We spent a lot of time talking about Bottega, rightly so. But when you step back and squint and stop thinking about Amazon, you think about entrepreneurs who you probably meet with regularly. What are the lessons from this? Not in an Amazon 1997 perspective, but in a under resourced, you know, massively high growth situation. What do you think the lessons are generalized to take out of this for future entrepreneurs?
0: Uh, I just think you know, bias for action. A lot of it is who you hire. Of course, hiring is the biggest thing. And so, if you, hire, you get to hire people like Ruben, who can come in and spend most of their day thinking about the problems and you know, great ways to solve the problems. That's the key right there. And and someone who can actually not sit around and you know, design for six months, the perfect solution to the problem. Can they actually take what they have, you know, Berkeley DBs and, and the code they have at their at their fingertips and, and cobble something together that actually works and then perfect it as time goes on? That To me, that's the biggest thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I think about it, I, I think about it like I've worked with a lot of engineers and some focus on the, you know, the complexity of the solution. I look at Bottega and it's just like, you're actually looking at it through a lens of what's the customer problem here <laughs> and how do we quickly solve it with an elegant solution that might not be perfect, you know, but in this case it was nearly perfect, you know, given the state of things. But that's what jumped out at me. Cause it lasted for I told the side story and we'll get to the naming. I was there, I started in May of '98. I had no idea bottega had anything to do with you. Like it was just, it wasn't the thing. It was the it's thing on top of the search results that was awesome, you know, yeah. and where you you spent all your time. So I also think about just the data, like, because you didn't have A-B testing at the time. You sort of knew what the result had to be, and it was, I'm assuming, watched very, very closely when the change was made.
0: We did. We watched it very closely, we watched the log files very closely. It actually was a beautiful thing in my mind because we're taking customer input and using it to make customer experience better every single day. To me, that's you don't get much better than that, right It's, it's you're using your customers using the volume of stuff we have on the site to make the experience so much better. And so I sort of just, I was amazed at uh, how quickly Ruben got it working and was sort of amazed at how well it worked and the, and the follow on things that, that it enabled as well.
2: This was one of those cases where you, you first thank the team for putting it all together because the first thing that, that came out is that, that I learned from it is that signal is more important than analysis. That buy signal is so strong and that buy signal wouldn't have been there had we not had, you know, people except we had we not been accepting, you know, credit card for purchases. Had we not had a website? Had we not had you know, a, a product that people wanted to use in the first place? And so, you know, that regarding your startup advice. If you have a strong signal that will take up the place of a lot of sophisticated analysis. In fact, it's better than sophisticated analysis. Then the other thing about the team is Dwayne, I know, protected me working on this. I was uh, talking about this topic a few years ago with Joel Spiegel, and he had mentioned he had just gone to Jeff Bezos with the plan of what, you know, we're going to do with search catalog for the year. We launched, and then he had to go back to Jeff and say, I made a mistake. And, <laughs> and Dwayne had to kind of buffer the amount of time I spent on this versus the other things because this was fun. This is, this is, you know, this is, this was
1: enjoyable. I mean, your head must have been blowing up when you're working on that over the weekend and you're looking at the results and you're comparing this screen from that screen. You're like, oh, my God, people are going to freak out. You know, you guys must have been so excited. Oh, yeah, we were. And I imagine you showing it to the first groups of engineers and people must have just been smiling like it was so much better.
0: Yeah, I mean, I clearly remember, I don't remember much about it, but I remember clearly, you know, whiteboard sessions with Ruben in my office and just filling a whole whiteboard full of this stuff and then him going off and implementing it in a matter of hours, you know, so that's a, it's a great feeling.
1: We didn't really mention it explicitly, so maybe just tell the fun trivia how Bottega got its name and sort of who knew behind it.
2: So, uh, what happened was, uh, the person working on the front end at the time was then a software developer by the name of Alex Edelman. And he kept calling Ruben Duane results, Ruben Duane results. And there's a bias in the organization not to name things after people. And so we're just like, you know, you know, not that comfortable. You know, it's it's, 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 similar search. And then he eventually flipped the name and he put in the, the secret code, the code he used to invoke it where well, he ended up flipping it to be Bottega. And It was so innocuous that it was like, well, I guess we can let that one go in. And so uh, that is how it got its name. Uh.
1: That's pretty cool. Like I said, I didn't know, so I think it fulfilled the innocuous part of its mission there because I was there for months before I I had any connection to the two of you, Uh, for better or for worse, but I think you guys would think for for better. Jumping around a little bit, you mentioned about the team. So Dwayne, you recruited Ruben. Can you just talk about... How many people were there when you got there, Dwayne? And did bar raisers exist? We haven't really talked about bar raisers. Or did that exist? Did you guys help create it? Like, what was it like in 97 and into 98?
0: I think when I got there, I got there right before Kim Rockmiller, probably. And so in her words, there was about 35 people doing everything, website, front end, back end, everything. So that was, that's the way I remember it, basically, you know, it was the second floor or whatever that was in the um, Second Avenue building. And I don't know that the word bar raiser, you know, the bar raiser program was not there, certainly. Even when I left, I don't think that it was it was there officially. But the idea of it was there right away. I remember being sort of surprised by how we did our whole interview loop and post-interview meetings and the whole thing. So we were very focused on getting the right people on the bus, which is smart. And that came right from Jeff and, and the people he hired. I think Joel did a great job at recruiting. He recruited a bunch of people from his past. So I I think more than anything else, that was probably a big reason for why Amazon could scale so quickly. Do you have any
1: inputs on that, Ruben, like thinking about not only being recruited, but sort of becoming a good interviewer? When I talk with startups, you know, sort of in advisory roles, I think the thing that comes up more than anything is leadership principles and baking that into the hiring process and performance process and sort of knowing what you're looking for and then trying to suss that out in the interview I don't know, Ruben, I think you talk with a lot of startups now. Like, how do you think about it back to then and now?
2: Oh, so there's like three questions there. Let's piece them apart. One, I was recruited in by Erica Locke, who introduced me to, to Dwayne and to Joel. And a bunch of my friends were working there. And I thought, I, I, oh, I can work there for six months. Let's see. Let's see how this works out. And Ended up spending nine years. The bar raisers itself really emphasize the importance of being a team. I was one of the first bar raisers. I was with the, that first group, including and I think Andrew Sturton started it. Or he was part of that initial core group and carried the bar raiser flag for quite a while. And we were pulled into a room and they said, you have been identified as some of our strongest interviewers. And the goal of the bar raisers was not only to make sure that we had impartial interview loops, but to make sure that the process of the interview loop went well. Just to make sure the managers weren't trying to hire people in desperation or because we needed a lot of people immediately. And and just to make sure that, that, you know, we were having a debrief, making sure that just, you know, similar to, I listened to Kim Rackmiller's story earlier. And there wasn't a lot of process at the time, but you had to put your name on something. You had to put your name and said, this group was interviewed. This candidate was interviewed by the following group. And who was your bar raiser? And that was effectively almost like the code review. Did you have this person? So if that candidate came in and there was, it ended up being a immediate a poor match, we had a, some accountability for it. And so now in talking with new startups, it, a lot of it is really reflection of the same, you know, who's their team? And how do they find new people on your team? You know, referral networks are good, but referral networks need checks and referral networks are inherently biased. We're biased by the schools we go to, we're biased by the organizations we hang out in. And so if having somebody on a loop dedicated to mitigating that bias is really helpful.
1: I found recruiting and interviewing very stressful, you know, because admittedly I wasn't good at it in the beginning. And so that was like a performance goal one year to literally just get good at interviewing. But yeah, it's that whole idea of I got to make a vote public before I know how everybody else felt and I need to document it and, you know, have a basis for it. I'll do a whole episode on this with someone and because it really is one of the biggest things I took from it, but the natural outcome of it from what we're talking about and Kim and Joel, and it's just the quality of the people that Amazon, especially early, I mean, it's obviously just grown from there by repeating the process, but just incredible people in those early groups recruiting other incredible people, you know, so Dwayne, allowing yourself to scale, Ruben, et cetera. So...
0: And I think, Dave, I heard you mention before that hiring engineers at Amazon in general was a tough go at first because Amazon.com wasn't a sexy engineering problem necessarily. It was a website. you know, It didn't seem that cool or problematic or whatever, difficult. But I would say the exception to that was probably the search team because the search problem was a very interesting and, and complex problem that people wanted to dig into when they saw what the volume was going on the site. So once we got past 98 or so, Hiring a great search engineers wasn't that that difficult. They wanted to come to us. They wanted to get their teeth into some place that's just handling the volume we were handling and, and problems that we were trying to surface the right thing for the customer at the right time, all that all that stuff. So that's the exception, I think.
1: I could see how someone who's interested in search would quickly grok the. You know, we have to figure out all these product attributes, and we have to know how to present it. We can personalize it. One question on that is to me. Books to music are pretty similar, you know, and I'm sure you can tell me why they're not. Was the real big problem when we jumped to things like electronics, you know, where it was more about comparing, you know, three CD players or the jump to maybe down the road, things like clothing where you had colors and sizes and because even availability can impact search, right? If you have two items that are about the same weighting. And the one's in stock and the other one's two-week delay. All that must have just made the work so much more complex. So the beginning part of that question is, how did the product mix change the search complexity? Because the releases seem to accelerate, you know, coming out of 98 into 99 and 2000.
0: Yeah, and I'll let Ruben talk about some details of that. But I think what I do remember is that we spent a lot of time trying to shoehorn in the attributes of music and video and toys and clothing into what we had at the time, into our existing Berkeley DB kind of index model. And I don't remember the details of it, but I remember there was a lot of angst and a lot of you know, unpopular decisions that were made about how we could possibly get this thing, get toys launched, get music launched, just, and not invent a whole new database solution. Is that right, Ruben?
2: Yeah, and every product line taught us something new. I mean, even the transition of books to music was difficult because a book index would ship once every one to two weeks. Maybe it would take a month if there was a, some problems with the build. Music had to ship every Tuesday morning. And the reason why is because music was published on Tuesdays. And so if data got stale, you know, we were unable to sell product. And so this was every new product taught us something new. So we had to update our build scripts and learn how to deploy in a weekly fashion. And then there were some hits generated things where we had to learn how to publish on demand with some you know, later product lines. And dealing with all the different capabilities are, you know, how do you deal with different sizing and sizing requirements and search by that attribute when you're dealing with clothes. So a lot of it was just learning how to build a search engine that was capable of handling the infinite variety, including as much as like, who's the vice president of the day. Here's a really important business decision. Somebody comes to the search engine and types in the word Xbox. Do you show the item that's available or do you show them the product item that's out of stock? depending on who's vice president that day, the search engine had to be mailable enough to present the item that we wanted it to present. Some some days we wanted to present the item that was just about to become available, and sometimes we wanted to present the item that is available now and not out of stock. And it depended on which category you were dealing with, whether that was an appropriate decision or not.
1: Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. You just feel like going down. Uh, we only have a few more minutes. I had one more search topic I wanted to ask about, particularly because, Ruben, you spent time at A9 as well, but... I also want to hear Dwayne if you were involved in this when did quote unquote sponsored link what do we call them sponsored links or paid on Google it's paid search but we did start inserting that stuff into Amazon results and now it's all over Amazon results can you talk a little bit about that and maybe before jumping right into this is a solution like what was the discussion around it like is this something we should do and how to think about it
2: Amazon launched its first word based ad product in December 28th of 2000 So we had the notion of wanting to put ads on the site since pretty much the start of the website. And I remember being part of that group because they asked me to implement it. (laughs) And it had led to one of the most important Jeff meetings I ever attended. I was in a room with a bunch of other vice presidents of various categories, and uh, they were all adamant that we can't launch ads on Amazon. We cannot launch ads on Amazon. It's going to cannibalize our sales. We won't do it. And they all unified under that concept. As the engineer in the room, I just wanted to implement something. I thought it was was going to be interesting. Jeff Bezos walked into the room, sat down and said, we're going to be launching ads on Amazon. I hear some of you have some concerns. The only one with temerity to speak was Jason Kylar, And Jason said... We have some concerns that launching ads will cannibalize sales on Amazon. And Jeff Bezos said, yeah, yeah, me too. Let's measure it and find out. And that was it. The meeting lasted about 10 minutes, tops. Yeah. And it was one of those great moments where you get to see leadership and leadership that's willing to be data-driven. And I was mm-hmm. happy that it happened. That product, the Slots product itself, lived and died very quickly. It was not a successful implementation because we didn't know what we were doing. But eventually, they figured it out, and I'm sure the solution they have now is much uh, more sophisticated than anything we could have drugged up at that time.
1: Did that work carry over to things you did at A9? Probably, A9 will be an entirely separate episode, but maybe tease it a little bit. Like, what? Where did A9 come from? Because in my mind, again, not at A9, it was all about search experimentation. And innovation and blue sky thinking, is that about what it was? Or was it also accommodating people that wanted to work down in Palo Alto? Like, it was never entirely clear to me where that came from.
2: The answer is both. It was a way for Amazon to learn how to set up a distributed office, first and foremost, really. And search was led by Udi Manber at the time. Yeah, and yeah. Udi joined the company. They asked me, you know, will you be his mentor? And given our relative seniority, I thought, you know, I'm going to be his river guide. I'll show him where the natives are friendly, show him where the water's shallow. And that ended up being an awesome partnership and creating some really innovative technologies. The help of uh, Jonathan LeBlanc and Barnaby Dorfman and the rest of the team. And it was about creating a space for search, both on Amazon to be produced, but also to try innovations like Street View, Block View, which was a precursor to Street View. Do search inside the book uh, and feature search inside the book results. Yep. Creating a way to federate across search results, which led to the creation of Search and a bunch of other technologies that were all about how do you expand uh, the accessibility of search and in, in an e-commerce world.
1: This is really exciting because my team's launched look inside the book. Melissa Kermeyer was the product person. But again, my failing memory doesn't connect that with A9 doing all the real work, You know the technology. Do you remember that side story where we took couple hundred thousand books or whatever it was, we shipped them overseas, we had them scanned and then we realized we screwed up and we didn't have them scanned for uh, OCR so we had to rescan them so that you guys could search, you know, index them and search them. I don't know if that rings a bell, but th- that's a true story. It totally
2: rings a bell and it also led, you know, th- this is also the foundation story of Mechanical Turk. You know, the OCR was bad and so for the exceptional uh, elements we would send them off to, you know, humans to take a look at it. And somebody thought, maybe we can make this a better system. And right. so Mechanical Turk ended up being part of the launch of A9 because we were trying to get people to center images for the block view. It's like, you know, which image has the McDonald's storefront in it? You know, you send it to a human to do that result, to figure out which page, which image was the best looking image.
1: I just keep writing down entire episodes here. So you know, I'm jotting down, you know, search inside the book. It wasn't something that... You should have Ruben back about 10
0: times, right? That's yeah, what, he what might, you
2: should
1: do. Ruben might be the new co-host if I can yes, pin there you down go. as he there travels the world. <laughs> yes. Well, look, anything else you guys want to mention or you were thinking about before we spoke today that you wanted to discuss? All right. Well, I did get some suggestions from both of you for some nonprofits and we'll link to them off of the post and show notes. Anything you want to mention about Woodlawn, Dwayne, or your uh, favorites, Ruben?
0: Woodlawn is just, is a K-12 independent school in Davidson, North Carolina, where I live. And uh, it's just, it's a little bit different than a typical, traditional independent school. So check out the website if you're interested in it.
1: And did you found that, the school? Or? Yeah,
0: my wife and I founded the school in 2002. We've been working on it ever since. We've done some teaching, some coaching on the board, you know, everything you can think of. And it's been a great experience uh, for me. Awesome.
1: Uh,
2: Reuben? When I was working at Pinterest most recently, I became associated with a group called devcolor.org. It basically is an organization dedicated to mentoring black software engineers and by other black software engineers. And I met the leadership of that team. We hosted them within the Pinterest offices down in the Bay Area and up in Seattle. And it was such a good organization. I really loved our partnership with them. And given how many Given the needs of the, some of the software engineers we have in the Seattle office and down in the Bay Area offices, this organization is looking to make uh, impact by having peers help their peers.
1: Well, look, you guys, thank you so much for being guests on the podcast and taking a flyer, uh, guests number three and four, or three, three and a half. Personally, it was really interesting. Like I said, I'm discovering this stuff, asking questions along the way, so it's. It's actually personally interesting, and I think other people are going to like it, too. And it really is great to see you both. I've probably seen Ruben more recently than Dwayne, but it's also been a while. So, you know, for the audience, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like more details about what we discussed or you want to suggest an edit or future topics or guests, please visit inventlikeanowner.com to sign up for the weekly newsletter and this podcast episode in particular is going to have photos that Ruben shared with me. It's old Amazon t-shirts, swag, puzzle pieces. And if you want to see what Bottega results look like, uh, we'll also have that in the results. And honestly, I still think they look pretty good. <laughs> um, you know, it's a pretty cool looking site. I wanted to invent like an owner site to look like the tabs, but my technical skills are very limited. So, and everybody, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get future episodes. That's it for today. And remember... No sniveling.